Hi, everyone. Welcome to the MyFit Podcast, hosted by fitness coach, business owner, and CrossFit Games athlete, DJ Hillier. Physical fitness and podcasting are two of his life passions, and his goal is to train, educate, and inspire those who want to improve their general health. These podcasts are designed to help everyone, from the occasional gym member trying to improve their overall wellness, to the fitness enthusiast. The episodes capture a wide spectrum of topics, including training, coaching, nutrition, entrepreneurship, relationships, and mindset. Follow the show on Instagram at the MyFit Podcast and subscribe to his newsletter at djhillier.com. So let's get to it. Hey everybody, welcome back. This is DJ Hillier and you are listening to the MyFit Podcast. This week's episode is a throwback to one of our most popular shows of all time. This week, we revisit a conversation with Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. Dr. Lyon is a functional medicine doctor who has an impressive resume. She is board certified in family medicine, has a doctorate in osteopathy, owns her own clinical practice, and has written for muscle and fitness, men's health, and women's health, and has made a name for herself by taking an integrative muscle-centric approach to health and wellness. Dr. Lyon is an extremely intelligent human being and a gift to the health and wellness space. In today's episode, we chatted about working in geriatrics, tips for a high quality life, everything you need to know about protein, strength training as you age, the lowdown on skinny fat, metabolism myths, and what might be going wrong if you can't seem to lose weight. This is a fantastic conversation full of actionable items, and I think it's just as valuable the second time around. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to leave a rating review and refer it to a person that you think could benefit from it. Also, if you're not yet, be sure to follow us on Instagram at the MyFit Podcast so you can catch the latest episodes as well as popular cl- clips from interviews. Thanks and enjoy the show with Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. Let's go. Dr. Lyon, welcome to the MyFit Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Awesome. Like I was saying off air, you are somebody that I really look up to in the fitness uh, space. You're very truthful with everything that you put out and I've been following you for quite some time. So I'm just excited for my listeners to be able to hear from you today. Great. I'm uh, really happy to share some of this information. Awesome. Uh, Where I want to start today first is kind of where I hear a lot of your interviews starting and it's your experience with geriatrics and working with people that are on their deathbed. And I think there's a lot of power behind working with people during that time, very vulnerable times of their life and and your life uh, getting started in your career. Can you talk a little bit about what you learned? What was some of the big impactful lessons during, during that time of your life? Yeah, what a great question. It's really interesting when you're faced with the end of life you know, because in our space, people are young and fit and, you know, late 30s, early 40s, they feel invincible. Mm-hmm. But that is actually not accurate. And I think that when you're younger, there's a lot of flexibility. So perhaps you don't have to follow the science as well. You can really be a hard charger and get away with things. But man, when you hit midlife, which arguably is maybe around that time, but Midlife is, is really the critical point of when you really have to start thinking, what is the long-term trajectory? Mm-hmm. And the reason I talk about midlife is because some of the research that I did, I, I went to WashU in uh, St. Louis, and I did a combined fellowship in obesity medicine and geriatrics. Mm-hmm. So part of that medical training was really about obesity medicine. Mm-hmm. And then the other part was about geriatrics. 
So I saw people in midlife and then as they aged, that geriatric end of life trajectory. And I would have to say it was the most powerful experience that I've ever had. Um, Because when you're sitting there at the bedside of individuals who have fallen and broken a hip, they always think back, what could they have done differently, you know? Because the end of life doesn't have to look what we picture it to look like. But sadly, it's what we see. We have, over, we have assisted living and nursing homes and, and these places that are really valuable and very important. But if you think, man, what are those things that we could start midlife to mitigate those aging effects, those sarcopenia effects, which is loss of muscle mass and function, which you know, arguably the antidote is strength training and optimal dietary protein, you can prevent that. So, you know, I, I really, that, that's what really changed my perspective mm-hmm. was sitting at those bedsides and really understanding that muscle is the key to longevity. It's the key mm-hmm. to everything. Yeah. And we're going to get into a lot of that stuff. I, I'm curious as, as well on um, what types of things were people, it's an interesting question people talk about, mm-hmm. what types of things were people regretting or what types of conversations were you having? Uh, maybe not about the protein side of things, we'll get there, but what, what were some right. things you learned maybe more about life in general? I'm sure there's a lot of lessons. Yeah. I would say the biggest thing that people talked about, you know, the end of life for anyone who's experienced it with a family member is a very sacred time. And it's never about what they did for work. Mm. It's always about the experiences that mm. they've had and the people that they love. And, you know, it was about the connections that they made, right? This life is so fleeting and I don't want to get too esoteric or, you know, avant-garde or whatever you want to call it. But it was, you know, when you were in the hospital doing a palliative care round and you're seeing, you know, you do rounds and you're seeing 30 dying patients a day, you hear a lot and you learn a lot. And what's so fascinating is that the conversations aren't incredibly different. Uh, so it was about, about, a lot about the loved ones in the community. Mm, very interesting. Yeah. How, how has that impacted your life, Dr. Lyon? Oh, yeah. Well, well one, it's made me incredibly paranoid. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, but it, it actually is one of the reasons why I feel so passionate about the message that I provide is because most of the people in this space are coming from the information from a different point of view. They're younger or even the physicians that are talking, maybe they're in their 50s or even 60s. They haven't hit that 80-year mark, right? So they, they haven't had the experience of geriatrics in their training. And so there's a lot of noise in the space and everyone's bickering, right? And the bickering creates so much confusion mm-hmm. and the confusion leads to impaired decision-making. So after seeing this, you know, I spent two years dealing with death and dying. And after you see that, you realize that the the questions people are asking and the arguments that they're having, especially in our space, are number one, the wrong questions. And number two, we shouldn't be arguing about it Mm. because it it, it changes the the way that the diffusion of innovation, the the thought process then changes. It becomes very distracting. Mm. So now we have the plant-based agenda, you know, and you have these people saying, well, everyone should go vegan or vegetarian. And then you have, you know, the carnivore of people who I love, and I'm probably more along those lines. Everyone is arguing. And in order to really put forth good science, it doesn't have to be an argument. It certainly can be a conversation. 
And the more we can teach people, the more we can do our best to teach evidence-based information. I mean, there's always an art to medicine. There's always an art to training, right? There's always that art. So you can read something, but then of course, you know, you, you steep things in good science, but you have a personal touch or you see that maybe this person tore a hamstring and then, you know, maybe they have a scar on their right pec that's affecting whatever it's affecting, you know? Um, so I think, you know, from my perspective, we all have to come together from a different place because mm-hmm. at 80, no one's arguing. Right. No one's arguing if protein's important mm-hmm. or resistance training. Mm-hmm. You know, it's everyone who's younger. Yeah. And what's scary is these are the conversations that are the loudest. So, so fascinating. I think there's a lot of value in there. We could probably talk all hour about. Yeah, what, what you no one's actually there. ever asked me that question in particular, and it's it's probably one of the most important questions. You know, and and the most important aspect of this conversation may not necessarily be the science. Mm-hmm. We'll talk science, but really understanding the current conversation, the current atmosphere of what's happening, and that the wrong questions are being asked, and the conversations that are being had are, are arguably the wrong conversations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So cool. Gosh, I'm excited. So, yeah, yeah. so, so what type, what types of tips would you give for people that are aging and they're, and they're trying to live, you know, a high quality life? I think that's kind of, you know, people, everybody sees death differently and they, you know, right. nobody wants to die per se, but we're not trying to end it on a, you know, a suffering state. So how would you advise people to live a high quality life? You have to train, you have to have good functional movement patterns. You have to be resistance training and you have to be pushing yourself. You know, there is some data that's out of McMaster University, out of Stu Phillips Lab, who I love. You know, his, his research would indicate that it, it's just really the higher volume and the lower weights as long as you're fatiguing the muscle. And I would say that that is possible, you know, the, the data definitely supports that. But in clinical practice, they, those individuals are much more likely or much more inclined to not train hard. And so if you put someone who's really challenging themselves and really training hard with not just heavier load, but more functional movements in clinical practice, I've always seen them progress. I have always seen them be able to have the most diverse movements, right? So they are not constricting of what they can do. So, oh, I used to be able to run. Now I can only bike, Mm -hmm. right? So you have to have good functional. So CrossFit is great. As long as you have a good coach, it's fantastic. Something that you say time and time again, and I love the phrase, is that muscle is the organ of longevity. And longevity is a topic that comes up probably every other week in my podcast, whether I try to or not. It's just a topic I think everybody's a little bit more conscious of now with the pandemic and just where we're at in in the world right now. Can you tell me a little bit about why the muscle uh, of organ is is longevity? Yeah, it's so fascinating. For the longest time, we've always thought about muscle as just looking good in a bikini. You know, it definitely helps, right? But it's so much more than that. It's so much more than just this tool and mass of locomotion, which it is that, but it is other things. So muscle is actually the, by weight, the largest endocrine organ. People are like, what? Yeah, it's an endocrine organ. And when you contract it, it secretes things. Um, and this research is pretty new. It's this, it secretes myokines. Myokines, you know, in particular, interleukin-6, which listen, Again, this is a very new and complex area of science that is, you know, exercise immunology is very new, but muscle secretes these myokines that travel throughout the body, right? We talk about, you know, brain health and bone health. This is all due to that contracting tissue, nutrient partitioning, carbohydrates, proteins, and fats. 
the, you know, exercise in and of itself is incredible. So helpful for mitochondria, you know, and mobility and all these things. But the contracting muscle as an endocrine organ also secretes other anti-inflammatory proteins. This is really important and valuable. Mm. So it's an endocrine organ. And by understanding that and treating it the way that you would treat your heart, right? You go to a cardiologist or maybe not you, you're young. And, but some of your patients may, you know, if they have a history of cardiovascular disease, they're going to go to get a baseline check. Or if someone has thyroid issues, they go to see an endocrinologist. Muscle is also an organ that is underappreciated and vastly overlooked as the why do you key think, Why do you think that is? Why do you think it's so over, uh, overlooked? Uh, because the, the fundamental system of medicine is problem-focused right? So everything is about the problem, the pathology, which arguably is why no one gets any better. Muscle requires work and it's solution oriented. So now all of a sudden we've shifted a whole paradigm of thinking from problem oriented to solution focused. That's not done in medicine. You know, every, most everything is pathology. Even right now, obesity, the current paradigm of thinking about obesity, everyone's talking about adipocytes. Everyone's talking about adipose tissue. That's the pathology. When, you know, it's just like in life, if you're constantly focusing on the problem, you typically don't get over the problem, but you get more of the problem. Mm, interesting. Hmm. So we have a failure of the fat focus paradigm. It's, and a, so, it's failed. It, it, absolutely. So when you say focus on the problem instead of the solution, so if you're telling people, hey, let's not focus on your, your fat, what, what, are you, what are you pointing them in the direction of? You already know this answer, but it's got to be muscle because muscle is a, the largest organ in the body. Not only that, it's responsible for your body composition. So your resting metabolic rate, just, you know, by essence of its size, mm -hmm. glucose disposal, it's one of the key components of glucose disposal. So everyone's talking about carbohydrates Should you go low carbohydrates, whatever it is that you're doing. But, you know, glucose disposal is really largely from muscle. Muscle is also a site of fatty acid oxidation. So if you care about body composition, and you should, because we know the more obese you are, the more you're at risk for any kind of diseases, mm -hmm. COVID, anything, mm -hmm. you are metabolically deranged. The solution to that isn't getting rid of more adipose tissue. That's helpful. But if you're talking about long-term practices that are put into place so there isn't a great recidivism rate or there isn't a relapse rate, you need to focus on muscle. Mm -hmm. And I know this might be a very like low level question, but when no, 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 your time when you were with geriatrics and, and you know the broken hips and some of those things were really Terrible. common. And I think people think um, that they're you know not they don't have enough calcium or they're missing something in their diet. Where or how could you see protein preventing some of those things? Yeah, so we know that protein is so important for muscle mass, and the muscle tissue changes, so it becomes anabolically resistant. Mm -hmm that there is kind of a, an inflection point is when hormones decline, there's also, you know, insulin resistance increases in the body, but the, the tissue becomes less sensitive and less efficient in protein utilization. No surprise that the majority of muscle mass is made from dietary, is, is made from proteins, mm -hmm. amino acids, which we get from our nutrition. The capacity to maintain that healthy skeletal muscle has a natural decline as we age. And that is really important to understand as it relates to sarcopenia. Mm. And that's usually when we kind of, when we age, sometimes we 
you know, don't eat as much protein or don't do some of the thing, the resistance right. training. And that's when we need yeah. it even, even more. So what, what are your thoughts yeah. on, let's get into protein. Let's talk about a little bit about what does that look like when you're aging? Do you need more? How do you, how do you go more. about it? And in fact, so the RDA is 0.8 grams per kilogram mm-hmm. and that's grossly underdosed. And they actually came out with a new position statement a couple years ago called the Age study. And that's P-R-O-T-Age. And it actually uh, typically doubles, roughly doubles the RDA. And that's just for protection of muscle. Wow. Um, you know, it's interesting because a lot of the research was done in younger individuals. And so that's where they came up with this 0.8 grams per kilogram. It's a very low level just to maintain life. Mm-hmm. But if you're talking about prevention and optimization, you know, if you guys are in your 40s, you got to start thinking about it. You can't do the 20 grams of protein and, and do the eating habits that you did when you were younger, this one meal a day business, not a great idea. Mm. Not a great idea to protect skeletal muscle. So you're saying that 0.8 is too low. You like to say one, one, one uh, gram, gram. Pound ideal body weight is a great place to start. And something that I think too, the, the, the common misconception could be that protein is more important for people when they're trying to gain weight or add muscle or add size. Right. But in reality, it's just as important for the people that are trying to lose weight. Oh my gosh. Yes, sir. It is. Yeah. I think that just, sometimes it just goes one way. They just think I'm just trying to add muscle size, but it, it's really two ways. And you know, really the, the biggest driver of muscle size is overall calories. Mm-hmm. So yes, you need protein and you need really good training. So you need sufficient load and you need sufficient stimulus. You do need protein, but overall you need calories. You need mm-hmm. that energy. Mm-hmm. Um, when individuals are trying to lose weight, arguably protein is more important because you, you have to think about what is the quality of weight loss that you're going to have. Mm-hmm. Quality of weight loss is determined by the amount of fat tissue that you lose. You do not want to lose skeletal muscle, right? You want to lose adipose tissue mm-hmm. and you want to arguably gain muscle. Tell me about what you've learned about protein for males versus females. Is there a lot of difference there? Is there any research no, that kind of backs that no. up? No, it's all based on weight. Mm. And this is a very common question. So for example, if I had a 150-pound woman sitting over there in my living room and a 150-pound man, and I wanted to optimally stimulate muscle protein synthesis, and they're the same age, it would require the same amount of protein. That's really fascinating. It's not sex dependent. Um, it's not blood volume dependent. It's really leucine threshold dependent. Can you break so, that down? Yeah, yeah. So leucine is really that key branch chain amino acid important for muscle protein synthesis, which everybody has probably already heard of. And if you haven't, it's just one of the essential amino acids that are necessary for the stimulation of what we call mTOR, which is simply mechanistic target of rapamycin. The only reason why it's important, well, there are reasons why it's important, but the reason it's important for muscle is because that's kind of like the magic lock and key to stimulate muscle protein synthesis. Mm -hmm. Um, That amount, the the triggering amount is, you know, it could be 1.8, but it's about 2.5 grams of leucine. It doesn't matter if you're male or female. You have to, and people are like, well, what is that leucine amount? So that's a minimum of 30 grams of dietary protein. That's probably, I mean, that's the minimum. You know, if you're looking to optimize, you're talking about 50 to 60 grams of dietary protein to more optimally stimulate muscle protein synthesis. Doesn't matter if you're male or female. Interesting. Can you break down protein synthesis for the um, listeners that aren't really familiar with that? 
Yeah, yeah. So really, the biggest thing that people have to understand is protein synthesis in spe- you know, specific. So the body's constantly turning over. So muscle tissue is turning over, liver tissue, gut tissue. When you think about body composition, you really think about muscle protein synthesis. And this is really as the muscle beat, you know, you're constantly going through periods where you like an overnight fast where you're in a more catabolic state. And then, you know, your first meal of the day is really the most important and the, you get the most robust response and then you move to a more anabolic state. Protein, muscle protein synthesis or protein turnover is really important because you have to lay down tissue. It's a very dynamic process. Um, you know, it's one of the reasons why eating dietary protein is considered more thermoeffective, right? So people will say, oh, well, it's because the nitrogen. Maybe. Okay. So yes, but also because it stimulates muscle protein synthesis, which is a very dynamic process, which takes a lot of energy. Mm. So fascinating. I love yeah, this stuff. Yeah, which, which actually isn't, you know, Don Lehman and I talk a lot about this together. You know, we, we think about these things. Mm-hmm. It's kind of what we do on a Saturday. It's like <laughs> pretty nerdy, but it's true. Um, you know, we were talking about with the thermal effect of feeding of protein. And is it really just because of the, the, the composition of the amino acids? And we're talking about it. And he said, well, you know, it's not just about the composition of the amino acid. He said, you know, I think it's because of this stimulation of mTOR and this, this protein turnover effect. Mm-hmm. So, so you mentioned the word uh, branch chain amino acids. And a lot of people know that as, you know, tasty BCAs that they can find at their, yep. their local store. What are your thoughts? I think there's a lot of different misconceptions about should people be taking it or not. What are your thoughts? Totally. Um, so I'm going to start with some of the science. So the science would suggest that branched-chain amino acids alone are not super effective for putting down muscle. And it would make sense because you're only getting a part of the the whole spectrum of the amino acids, right? So that being said, how do you use branched-chain amino acids? Sure. Well, if you are having a lower protein meal, let's say you're having 15, 10 grams of protein, then like maybe you having 10 grams of protein from fish or something, or maybe you just want two eggs, but you want to get a robust response, but you don't want the calories, you could easily utilize branched chain amino acids. That would be one way to use it. Anecdotally, I've seen it very helpful intra-workout to delay muscle soreness. I don't know if there's great evidence, but I have seen that anecdotally really help individuals. Um, you know, another time that there is some benefit is in a highly catabolic state. Mm-hmm. And again, this could be bed rest, right? Or, you know, is bed rest catabolic? Well, typically the reasons you got to be on bed rest is there's some catabolic um, process happening. It's also really helpful if you are not feeling well. So there's an immune response, right? So um, that can be very helpful. So would you say if somebody has a really balanced diet, they're very robust in their, in their protein don't diet, need don't need it as much? Okay. don't need it. And, you know, Bob Wolf, Rob Wolf, his name is Robert Wolf. He's in Galveston, Texas. Um, not the Rob Wolf, the paleo guy. Got it. Like, <laughs> yeah. But uh, Bob Wolf uh, in Galveston did a great paper on this about that there would be no reason to just have the branched chain amino acids. Very cool. Talk to me a little bit about quality versus quantity. I know you're very passionate about this, about getting quality protein in. Why, yeah. is, it, why is it so important? And what, how do people differ between the two? Man, it's so emotional for people. And listen, protein has a face. I get it. It's very emotional. So um, it's not as easy to eat as a stick of butter or whatever people are eating. So the, the protein quality is typically 
plant versus animal. And yes, I say versus because in this current nutrition narrative, it's all about how, um, you know, we should replace animal protein or make it a condiment for plant protein. That's horrible advice. Horrible advice, perhaps not if you're younger, but definitely if you're aging, which is all of us, yeah, right? <laughs> exactly. I mean, we're all aging, whether we like it or not, it's happening. Right. Um, so when you think about animal protein, it, it, it's kind of like like feeds like. So the quality of the skeletal muscle has the amino acid profile necessary to optimize human skeletal muscle. Plants make proteins that would essentially optimize plants, even though plants aren't really eating other plants. So plants are typically very low in the branched chain amino acids, um, which is really what determines quality. So when we think about the quality of protein, it's those branched chains mm -hmm. versus animal proteins, even eggs, whey, all have this in an optimal um, amount. So you cannot interchange. If you're going to go plant-based, you're going to require 35% more calories. Mm -hmm. And it just seems like way, yeah, it seems like it'd be way harder. <laughs> yeah, and gross. You want to eat like five pounds of broccoli? It's not going to happen. Right. It's incredibly inefficient. And then you have to move on to the concept of nutrient density. Mm. So you're talking about iron and B12, selenium, zinc, carnitine, creatine. I'm not going to get these from plants. Mm-hmm. Or at mm -hmm. least you're not going to get them in any relevant amount. What are, what, are your, what are your thoughts on mixing up your protein? I'm, I'm a guy that I, I do my meal prep on Sundays, Dr. Lyon. I make a bunch of chicken breasts, and that's kind of my thing for the week. And, I'm, and I don't do a good job at mixing it up. I know I should, but tell me why I should be mixing it up and why is that important? Or maybe is it not? Um, you know, I do think variable uh, variation in diet is important. I think that because if you eat chicken all the time, you know, it certainly doesn't have as much iron that, um, you know, like beef has. Mm -hmm. There's a difference in fat content, so you have to account for calories. But, you know, you think about some of the, the zinc and the B12 and, and these kinds of things. I think it's important to vary the, the sources. Um, so I do think variation is important. Mm -hmm. And another thing on top of that too, I just, I just want to debunk all the myths. You're yeah, the, per yeah, you're the perfect sure. person to talk to about yeah. this stuff. And I think the other myth, and I, I I think thankfully it's a little bit outdated now, but maybe some people that are a little bit older still think about this, but talk to me about the red meat myth. I think that's something that's kind of oh still God, out there a little I bit. And I, I know, I know it grinds no, your gears, but <laughs> talk to me about it. So this concept that red meat is bad for you has never been substantiated. And in fact, the annals of internal medicine, which is like the Super Bowl of journals, one of the Super Bowl of journals, excellent journal came out with a whole position statement analyzing the data. You know, we are very good as humans to, you know, to, to think something, have a little bit of cognitive bias, and then execute it. And cognitive bias is just reiterating uh, what you know from what you know or what you think. So um, the Annals of Internal Medicine analyzed all this data and found that we don't need to be cutting back on red meat. There's been a lot of data out there. Uh, Klerfeld, I believe his name, wrote a great paper in response to the IARC committee, which is the international research something on cancer, when they said that red meat was a carcinogen. Mm -hmm. And he said, man, they threw out all the high-quality studies. They did. They threw out all the high-quality studies, randomized controlled trials because they weren't big enough. And anyone who's ever done research knows how hard it is to get human randomized controlled trials, very expensive and very difficult in favor of epidemiological data. Mm 
Mm. And epidemiological data is low quality data. No physician is going to make an expert recommendation. No, if they have integrity on low quality data, it's really just to see if there's a hypothesis there. And then you do a risk ratio and you determine if something has a connection. So for example, smoking and cancer, the, you know, we'll just call it a relative risk. The relative risk, if you smoke, that you're going to get cancer is 12. People are like, okay, well, what does that number mean? Well, anything above two is considered, you know, uh, a problem, right? Mm -hmm. So there is uh, an issue there that you don't want to smoke. You do have an increased risk of getting cancer. The relative risk of eating red meat and any kind of cancer is like 1.2. That's considered insignificant, not clinically, uh, it's not clinically significant. So, you know, when there's all these, these things swirling about, about red meat causing cancer, you have to ask yourself, so what's the data? And number two, what's the mechanism of action? How is this one food going to cause cancer? Right. Yeah, I think we need to do a good job at, and you're doing an awesome job at debunking it. I don't know where it's kind of coming from. Like you said, it's just like an insignificant source, but we just all, all the trainers and, and the dietitians, right. everybody just needs to do a better job at explaining like that is not something that needs to be. But where, so you could ask someone and say, well, what's the mechanism of action? How does it cause cancer? Mm-hmm. We've been eating it for millions of years. It's one of the things that allowed us to change our brain. Mm. Maybe not particularly red meat, but it's something, you know, cooking our meat and being able to eat meat, which we've been eating for 2 billion, you know, two to 5 billion years, however long we've been doing it. How does that cause cancer? Yeah, no kidding. I know, it gets you, I, I know that gets you riled up. <laughs> it does. And if you're going to talk about cancer, what's much more, much more of an effect is being obese. Because mm-hmm. you know that obese in and of itself has an oncogenic nature to it. Mm-hmm. Right. Talk to me a little bit about the benefits of eating protein first thing in the morning. I heard you on a podcast yes. talk about yes. why, why it's so crucial first thing in the morning. Oh, man, because you are primed. You're in a highly catabolic state. So the first meal of the day, I don't care when you have it, whenever you call it as breakfast, is your most important meal. The initiation factors, um, the mTOR signaling, the, the system is exquisitely sensitive to leucine. So at that time, breakfast, whatever the first meal is, whatever time that is, is the most important meal. Um, you know, and then subsequent meals, we don't really know the dosing range of, of what the subsequent ideal meals should be. It's interesting because I always talk about getting an even distribution. You probably don't need an even distribution. And I'm going to be- Of protein or of- Yeah, about protein. So I actually uh, have a new concept that I'm going to be coming out with. I'm talking about it here first. And it's this concept of called protein cycling. And it's not cycling over weeks. You don't go through periods of time where it's low protein, but it's actually protein cycling per meal. And, uh, you know, that first meal, getting that most robust response to that first meal and hitting that 45 grams is the most important. And then arguably your second meal could be less robust in protein. You, you want to get that minimum threshold at, you know, like 25 to 30 grams of protein. But you don't have to get 40 to 50 grams. And the reason is, is because we know that muscle protein synthesis is stimulated and kind of runs for about two and a half hours, and then it has to reset, but it needs time. So you can eat, an, you can eat another robust meal, but you still have, uh, you still need ATP. So you mm-hmm. still need energy. So perhaps if you're trying to cut calories, that second meal 
maybe uh, you can, you, that's where you can reduce your protein intake. And sometimes to correct me if I'm wrong, but having that, having a good amount of protein in the morning can sometimes give you that, you know, that full feeling where maybe that helps you not cheat at, at, at work to have the donut or whatever. So sometimes that can help just feel full. Is that right? And that's Heather Lighty's work. Um, and I think she's in, I don't remember, I don't know if she's in Nebraska now, uh, but that's actually her work. And she actually imaged individuals' brains and it, it did a lot of work on the satiation effect of yeah. protein. You know, I mean, it's been out there for a while, but actually looking at the brain impact. Very yes, cool. absolutely. Protein at your first meal is the most important. So admittedly, I have the most protein uh, at night when I eat. I ha- uh, my, my dinner is my most highest protein meal. What also a of- good strategy though. Okay, talk so to me about that. Also a good strategy. Um, and this is the concept of protein cycling that I'm coming out with is that as long as that first meal has a more optimal range, so 45 grams, then your last meal could have 60 grams. It's that meal in between when, you know, all the studies, the majority of the studies looking at the, the stimulation of muscle have typically been at breakfast. Because once you stimulate that mTOR process and muscle protein synthesis, it takes time to reset. And in fact, I don't know if they, they know how long that takes. Um, so it's just something to, to consider. Yeah. Okay. Very good. I just want to make sure I wasn't totally off base there. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> Um, I think something else that people might be listening and hearing this for the first time, they're like, oh my gosh, there's no way, I, you know, I'm 130 pound female. There's no way I even get a hundred grams of protein, Dr. Dr. Lyon. Where do I freaking start on this journey? Um, I want to, I want to try it. Where the heck do I start? Start with a shake in the morning. Give yourself a nice whey protein shake, throw in a scoop of collagen. I don't cut collagen as a complete protein source because it's, it's, it's devoid of tryptophan and very low in branch chains, but it's great for hair, skin, and nails anecdotally. Um, but getting, you know, if you don't want to eat four ounces or five ounces or even six ounces of beef in the morning, which I don't blame you, then go for a shake. But just make sure that you get that first meal or go for a smaller level shake. You could throw in branch chains at that time, um, you know, or a couple eggs and then a little bit of a protein shake or some branch chains, but really get that first meal down. Mm-hmm. If you're going to do anything, you could front load it. Are there any sorts of, I don't know, snacks, any things that people, that people kind of glom onto that you like when they're in the beginner phase of trying to add more protein? So I'm not a huge fan of snacking on protein. I think that really, if you're going to have protein, you know, you, you want to think about the metabolic benefits. And so snacking isn't a great strategy because oftentimes people get in the habit of having sub-threshold protein amounts, right? The true test of being hungry is if you're hungry, go eat a chicken breast, mm-hmm. right? Have you ever just sat there like, oh man, I'm so hungry. And then if I told you, yeah, go eat a plain chicken breast, you'd be like, nah, I'm good. <laughs> so um, yeah, I guess that was a roundabout way of saying, I, I don't necessarily recommend snacking on protein. I think that it's important to strategically plan protein forward meals, um, you know, that's more beneficial for Mm -hmm. people. And again, a a rookie question here for just people that are trying to dive in. What are some of the, you know, best protein sources out there? If you're going to the grocery store, again, I'm let's say I'm a very new person to this idea. What what sort of things should I be shopping for? So this is going to sound gruesome and I'm sorry in advance. If it runs or flies, is, you know, at some point in its life is gravity bearing. And then of course there's eggs and proteins. That's a good source of protein. So beef and lamb and turkey and chicken, all of those things, either they all run. Um, 
Did I miss anything? Bison is great. Fish is also good, but fish has about five grams of protein per one ounce. Mm. So it has a little bit less. And I see people make that mistake quite a bit. Um, it's a little bit less. Or they, over, they overload on too much fish. No, they don't have enough. Okay. And then they're constantly sub-threshold. Got it. So then they're in a constant sub-threshold state. When yeah. you say sub-threshold, Dr. Lang, can you, can you talk to me what that means? So the whole goal of eating protein is really for the amino acids. We're not eating for protein for just protein's sake, but there's, you know, 20-some amino acids, and, and you're really eating for those amino acids. And each amino acid has a very specific purpose in the body. You know, for example, threonine is an amino acid that's important for mucin production in the stomach. You know, um, arginine is really an, an important amino acid for NO2 production. For, it's a precursor for NO2, which is important in blood pressure. And then my favorite, the branched-chain amino acids in particular, so there's leucine, isoleucine, and valine, and leucine is in particular important for muscle protein synthesis, which at a very foundational level is important for body composition. Mm. So um, when you eat sub-thresholds, so you're not, so back to the question of, of eating sub-threshold, if you're not eating two and a half grams of leucine, you don't even, because the process of muscle protein synthesis requires ATP and requires all this energy. If you're sub-threshold, you don't even begin to stimulate that process because the body's like, I'm not, I don't want to waste my energy on that, right? So if a woman, and this is, you know, I am a practicing physician, I see patients, and I'll have patients come in and they'll have two eggs in the morning. So they have essentially 12 grams of protein. They're sub-threshold. Their body is not going to go through muscle protein synthesis. They're not going to work on a turnover right? That's just not going to happen. So if individuals do that throughout their life, they'll ultimately become skinny fat because you're constantly eating sub-threshold. And then people say, oh, but it's about the 24-hour period. Yes, it might be about a 24-hour period, but you cannot ignore there's a meal threshold. The skinny fat idea is interesting to me and a little bit comical because it's just a funny combination of words, but can you dive in a little bit more about what, what does that look like and why does that happen? Obesogenic sarcopenia. So people are like skinny, but they're actually the majority of their body is body fat. You know, you're looking at 30% body fat, you know, Mm -hmm. skinny, but mostly fat, not ideal. Right. And because of, and because of that, they're, they're not getting enough protein in throughout the day. And that's why you know, it could be protein, it could be training, there could be um, other issues, but the majority of the time, typically, it's overeating, undertraining, and uh, yeah, not, dis- not thinking about meal distribution, mm-hmm. which is really important. Yeah. Gosh, this is all good. I, I love the protein stuff, and I think that it's something that people underestimate or they only think they need to do if they're trying to build like if they're if they're trying to like gain size like that's not really at least that's what i hear and it's just like that you need that you need protein for body composition not just if you want to gain size muscle and get stronger that that might not be your goal right and i just told you all the other things like it helps with blood pressure and it helps with gut turnover and and gut protection it helps with neurotransmitters it helps with all this stuff Mm-hmm. But, you know, you get people buy-in in a vanity aspect. So if I say, hey, man, you're going to look so good in a bikini, right? Or a mankini or whatever you wear, <laughs> right? <laughs> then from a core fundamental level, I've baited you in because I'm going to tell you you're going to look better, but you're going to have less anxiety. Your body's going to heal better. Your immune system is going to be better. You're going to have all these other added your blood pressure is going to be lower. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, if calories are controlled, there's all these other things that happen. 
Right. At the end of the day, I think if you want to age well, you would echo that protein needs to be number one. It is the most important macronutrient. Mm -hmm. and, and two, for the people that are maybe getting into macros, that could be another topic as well, where it's like, oh, I have, three, I have these three macros. Where do I start? I think the best place for you probably to start, you would agree, is let's dial in your protein first. And then, and then we have to. And the data would support that. Mm -hmm. You know, you would say, okay, well, you, you got to you know, think about your caloric target range, but how you figure your calories is, number one, you got to protect your tissue. Number one. Right? You have to maintain and protect your tissue, which you could easily say one gram per pound ideal body weight of protein. Mm -hmm. And then when you think about carbohydrates, you have to, you know, it's interesting. I was just talking to Don about this earlier. We're going to do a YouTube. Uh, we always try to do three YouTubes a week together, awesome. and then I Good. put it out over a week. So there's two models of obesity that everybody's talking about. There's the carbohydrate insulin model, right? And this is Ludwig, Ludwig and, and those guys are saying, well, really, you're going to get obese if you just eat a bunch of carbohydrates because you're going to screw up your insulin. Okay, so insulin can be toxic. Glucose we know is toxic, right? The definition of diabetes over a two-hour period of time is blood sugar dysregulation. And then you have this calories in, calories out group. So you have these two groups like, fighting all the time. We know the calories in, calories out matter, 100%. But also, insulin, carbohydrate, it also matters, right? You cannot ignore the fact that excess insulin causes a subsequent blood sugar drop, and then perhaps postprandial, you have a more desire to eat, right? So it does change the kind of homeostasis, um, makes things more highly palatable. So when I think, and this is a really long way of getting to the point of, what is carbohydrate distribution as it relates to meals, I'm about to tell you, is really 40 grams or less of carbohydrates per meal. Probably women, maybe even 25 grams, mm. right? And this is all related to an insulin response. So protein does cause a phase one insulin response. People say, oh, protein causes insulin response. Well, it does, but it's a phase one, so it's preform insulin. And then you have a subsequent response, which is typically from carbohydrates at a more robust level, over 40 grams, right? You are going to release insulin to get rid of the, the, the glucose. So meal distribution and thinking about carbohydrates on a per meal basis is incredibly valuable because now we've addressed calories in, calories out, mm -hmm. and we can also mm -hmm. tackle the uh, carbohydrate insulin model. Mm -hmm. I think that the intersection between the two, if everyone would stop fighting, would really make the, I mean, it makes the most sense. Yeah, that's brilliant. What about the idea of carbohydrates around your workouts? That's kind of a big thing. Totally. As well. Yeah. Great place to put them. Mm -hmm. You know, and then I'll just throw a little, little wrench in there. There's this, some data that suggests training in a low glycogen state is very beneficial. So not utilizing carbohydrates prior to workout. So I guess the biggest question is, what are you going for? Are you going for body composition? Or are you going for performance? Tricky. So I think that's where the individual experience of a person, you know, I did fitness and figure for a really long time and I never used carbohydrates before I trained. I always used it after. Mm -hmm. And then I have some athletes and, you know, the military guys who don't care about body composition and listen, hey, they're totally, you know, jacked and tan. I'll do carbohydrates before and I'll do carbohydrates after. But again, of course, you know, we're comparing apples to oranges because their training is totally different. Right. So tell me a little bit more about the difference between training or sorry, eating for aesthetics and eating for performance. I think this is a really good topic out there because I think yeah. some people are kind of on both sides. What, what else have you learned? So I've seen a couple things. I've seen the better the athlete, 
the, there's this kind of inflection point where their health declines. So they're training at such high volume and intensity and they're pushing their cortisol, they're pushing their body to the limit, their health declines, right? Um, so there's that aspect. They could tank their testosterone, their recovery is not great. There's all kinds of things that happen. Um, so that, that's one extreme, right? And then, you know, my husband is a Navy SEAL and I take care of a lot of SEALs in my practice. These guys, they are burning the candle at if there's more than two ends, they're doing it, right? They're just really hard chargers. Though that kind of uh, health recovery kind of continuum is tough. So the performance aspect, if you kind of get into a sweet spot, you can balance, right? So I take care of one uh, IndyCar racer. I'll just give him as an example. He doesn't do low carbohydrates. Everything is on a one-to-one ratio. Um, so his proteins and fats are on a one-to-one ratio. And then we titrate his fat depending on what his need is. He won the Indy 500. He crushed it. Right. Awesome. And then when you think about aesthetics, man, you're going to suffer. You are not training for health. You are not training for performance. You are training to look good, and it hurts. Mm-hmm. On, the it hurts. Far, on that far end of the spectrum, being on stage, bodybuilding, yeah. That type, yeah, those types of things, right. I used to compete at 9%. Not good for health. Right. Right. And, right? and, and perhaps the performance, too, just because I, I'm a performance athlete, and I, and I know that my training is not good for longevity and my carbohydrate intake and stuff like that is not good for long-term stuff. So it's kind of finding that sweet spot of like, you know, because you're an elite athlete also doesn't mean you're healthy. Where can we kind of find that middle spectrum? Would you echo that? I think everything has a season. I think it's, you know, I think you have to determine what is the season going to be. You are training for performance and you know that that is your season then you go for it. You Very have cool. to be 100% fully invested in whatever endeavor you're doing. If you are a guy screening for green team or going to dev group, you know, which is SEAL Team 6, you're going to do whatever it takes. It doesn't matter what the recovery is. You're not even thinking about that. You are totally dialed in. Mm-hmm. So I think that it's determining the season and the length of the. And I don't mean the season as in the sporting season. I mean more like the season of life. So if you're going to push hard for months or a year, then you know that there's there's always a cost to doing business. And then you have to go through some kind of recovery if you are looking to be a lifelong athlete. Mm -hmm. Great advice. So if we're still talking about longevity and aging gracefully, if you will, talk to me a little bit about what is the, you know, we we got the protein down. We know what our meals should look like. And your idea, what should the training kind of look like if we were to pair them together? So it depends on what we're talking about. So if you're talking about aging, I think this is really the area where you want a specialist to come in. Um, Those that are really good at programming, this is what they do, Mm -hmm. right? They've trained in it. They're very up to date on the science. They're going to look at movement patterns. You know, the last thing you want to do is debilitate someone because they have really poor movement patterns, you know? So I think, you know, thinking about always doing something for mitochondria, so always doing some kind of cardiovascular activity, even if it's swinging kettlebells, sure. right? So there's that mitochondrial activity, and then there's that resistance component. And, you know, you want to see it three to four days a week, depending on what the cycle is, right? So I hate to give a generic recommendation, but for everyone to start, number one, do a baseline assessment. Where are you at? How much are you moving? What are you doing just for your walking activity? What is your activities of daily living like? Then doing some kind of cardiovascular, depending. I've just seen it really helpful in maintaining body weight. Those individuals that are moving more. And listen, 
there's, so there's that steady state and then there's that high intensity interview, uh, interval. And uh, arguably, it's the most effective in body composition as it relates to insulin and glucose disposal, right? Insulin sensitization. So throwing in high intensity interval training, some kind of steady state, some kind of movement. And then, you know, they always say, you always hear about volume, volume being the king or queen. You have to have adequate volume and effort. And that, so you've got to work with a great trainer. You really do. Right. Yeah. And, and that along with making sure your diet is on point. And that's probably, you would probably say is more important than the, than the latter. Do you know what? Are you ready for this? I'm ready. I absolutely would say it's diet. Do you know the research would say that actually exercise has a bigger impact? That blows my mind. Mm-hmm. Exercise actually has a bigger impact on body composition than diet. Oh, wow. Interesting. Weird. Because I would always say, hey, man. It's definitely diet. For sure. But, you know, I've been told by some of the people in the academic community, they're like, well, not really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Both equally important. I think we would both agree on though. Yes. <laughs> um, another thing that I hear too, when I hear about the aging athlete is that their metabolism is slowing down. And it's the idea of, man, when I was your age, I could eat Jack's pizza and totally. do this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> can you talk a little bit about the metabolism yeah, and the can metabolism. we debunk it? So the concept that metabolism slows down, again, there's always a reason. And typically, muscle mass declines. There is a hormonal component that absolutely declines, right? So, you know, whether an individual is using TRT or some kind of uh, testosterone replacement or, or whatever, whatever it is, but the reason, the biggest reason metabolism slows down is you have loss of movement, not moving nearly as much, mm. and also you lose muscle tissue. That's why you gain weight. You know, if you look at perimenopausal women, that is the time in which they lose the most muscle is right about um, during menopause. It's also when they gain the most weight. Interesting. So, yeah. So it's not a, I'm older. I hate that excuse. If you're too. If anyone who's listening is my patient, they know that I'm not buying that. Mm-hmm. It has nothing to do with that. Mm-hmm. And it has everything to do with the other things that we talked about. Right. And, and when you do age like that, that is going to come with it. Like you're going to lose muscle. You're going to lose some muscle. You're not going to be the 22 year old stud athlete that you were before. I mean, Don't tell do- my husband that. <laughs> I mean, some of that comes with aging. So I think having the idea of knowing that some of that comes, but I can also stop a lot of it and be ahead of the game a little bit more than maybe more of the 56 year olds out there. Oh my God. And we don't even know. So right now we have more information and access. We have access to more information than we ever had before. We don't even know what it looks like to take the information that we have now implemented and see what the aging 70 and 80 year olds are going to look like. Mm -hmm. I can tell you my dad, my dad is 75. He only will take a transportation. He lives in Ecuador. He'll only take transportation if it's three hours or less. (laughs) Otherwise, the dude will walk. <laughs> what a badass. He'll walk. Okay. He lifts weights three days a week, eats about 180 grams of protein a day. He was an all-American champion wrestler, championship wrestler when he was at Wharton, Penn, University of Pennsylvania. Like, you know, that's what the, he, you know, he's a really spiritual dude who does a lot of gratitude and a lot of learning, keeps his mind very active. And this is what aging can look like. Absolutely. His testosterone is better than the guys that the guys that I have that are living in the cities mm-hmm. that are yeah. half his age. Yeah, as a as a coach and a trainer, I, I one thing that really bugs me hearing in the gym is, well, I'm just I'm just getting old. I'm just fighting age, or I'm just you know it's it's such a negative connotation. And I think 
you, what you were trying to do more than anybody else is just like, let's not, let's not see it as a negative thing. Let's try to own this and make it a positive. And you know how we're going to do that? How so? We have to have everyone stop fighting about stupid stuff. They're missing the whole point. And then we have a whole demographic, a whole generation of people that are not finding this information accessible. Mm. Do you realize how deadly that is? So we have our parents who think, you know, oh gosh, I shouldn't eat red meat and I don't want to lift weights. I'm too old. And, you know, my doctor said I should cut back on red meat and like all this stuff. So if we're all in the space disagreeing and we are kind of like bickering at this level about paleo and carnivore and keto and if it fits your macros and everyone's arguing, then we're not doing what we're intended to do, which is ultimately help each other out, right? And I know that that seems extreme, but there's more people that are confused than there are more people that's sure of what they're doing. Amen. Right? And if you have that, how do we move the needle for people? So then when they end up in a nursing home or they're on that path, man, what a disservice because maybe it's not them that are looking at social media and trying to learn, but it's their kids like our age. And then we want to teach them, but we're so confused. And then we disseminate the wrong information. Mm. Yeah. So it's, um, more, now more than ever, it's important that we come up, you know, with evidence-based information, give good information, try to help distill all the noise so that truly people can move the needle mm. for themselves, for their parents. Right. And that's why we have you to set the truth for, for everybody to, to I listen. need help. So if anybody <laughs> is interested in interning with me, contact me. Awesome. Good. That's a good plug. Um, I have a very loaded question before we start uh, um, wrapping things yeah. up here, but what are your thoughts on somebody who maybe is out there and they're like, I just can't lose weight. What are some things that you point to? What are some ideas that you'd want to talk about if they can't lose weight? Yes. And I've had these patients. So there is that calories in, calories out. I've seen that on occasions not work despite really detailed tracking. Um, then this is when you look at endocrine regulation and thyroid resistance and, you know, look at Hashimoto's and some of these other aspects. Um, you know, this is going to be a very controversial statement, but I'm going to say it because they call me the last stop doc. I have seen environmental toxicities in individuals, a ton of mold poisoning. Um, I myself gained 10 pounds, right? So there's this, you know, I mean, I lost it, but you have to treat it. So there's, you know, the way in which we are living isn't always conducive, you know, water damaged buildings. I mean, this stuff can really create an, an overburdening effect. And it's this well-documented environmental medicine. Um, you know, I do look at pathogens, so gut microbiome issues. And again, this is this is not, and now I'm not talking as an academic person, I'm talking just solely as a practitioner who's in the trenches seeing patients. And this is when you look for uh, parasitic infections, gut infections, and the, the testing is notoriously terrible in the U.S. So I typically send it overseas to get it evaluated, mm. you know, because I had to find reasons uh, for the soldiers that I see. Like, why are they not feeling well? But they've been to every testing, they've done all this stuff, so you know, just really getting very good at, at diagnosing and being a good diagnostician. Mm. 
Very cool. Awesome answer. As we wrap things up here, if somebody is just kind of tuning in now, maybe tell me about, tell me uh, the three to five things they can take away to age gracefully. What do you have, Dr. Lyon? Number one, be grateful. No one likes a sourpuss. Okay. So now I'm going to get to the other parts. Number two, eat your protein, your total caloric, you know, determine what your protein need is. And that's one gram per pound, ideal body weight make sure you are eating high quality protein. Then the next thing you're going to do is you're going to distribute that throughout the day. You're going to make sure that your first meal of the day is the most robust, that you're making sure that you're actually increasing that to roughly 45 grams of protein. Now, this is different than the things that I've always talked about because for me, it was so important that you guys got baseline information. But now I think you're more advanced and so we can really move the needle. So we're talking about 40 to 45 grams of protein at that first meal. Um, and then getting protein distributed throughout the day, minimum of 25 to 30 grams. So the, And then if you wanted to take it one step further, obviously you have to do resistance training and your carbohydrate intake should really be 40 grams or less per meal. And I wouldn't put in carbohydrates that first meal of the day. Oh, I love it. What a great place to end. I do have three final questions that have nothing to do with protein. I ask all my guests great. these. I'm going to put you on the spot. We'll have some fun. The first one, Dr. Lyon, what is one piece? You already said the advice, but maybe this is different. What's one piece of advice that you would give to an 18-year-old kid who wants to be in your shoes someday? Um, so I actually get this question a lot. Oh, good. And um, the one piece of advice is it's going to be painful and it's going to hurt and you're going to make a ton of sacrifices. And it's all going to be worth it. Um, you know, I spent 17 years in education. So you've got to put in your time. There are no easy shortcuts. People are always like, oh, what's the, you know, do I have to do this? Do I have to do that? There's no easy, easy shortcut. So put in the effort and put in the work. And then you can really move the needle for people. Very cool. I'm going to add this one just because I think there are going to be some people that are interested with this protein stuff. That's maybe they're new to it. Do you have like a, a book or a resource or something that people can... Yeah. So actually I'm writing a book right now. Awesome. Um, Sweet. Yeah. It's going to be great. It's going to be some of the things that I've learned in um, dealing with the seal population and also the general population. Just so oh, like, cool. It's cool. Actually, I'll send you a copy. Yes, please do. Um, when, do you, when do you anticipate that being out? Um, so I'm just finishing up the proposals. It will go out to publishers um, shopping, publishing houses in December. Oh, exciting. Right for, right for Christmas. How huh? perfect. Yep. Um, so I have a free protocol on my website. It's the Lime Protocol 2.0, and it's a really great place to start. Yep, it is. They can go and they can download it. I'm very diligent about my newsletter. Um, I write it. I put it together. I curate it. I usually put in one to two studies, uh, great YouTube. Usually Don and I have some kind of conversation. And by the way, I, I really do a lot of the interviews with Don because he's you know, an academic. He doesn't talk to the public a lot. So the more that I can get out from him, the more I can give to you guys. So I have a YouTube channel and it's very valuable. To, you're talking to one of the world leading experts in protein metabolism. And that's Donald Lehman, right? He was the guy that really discovered leucine and mTOR situation. It's a big deal, you know? Absolutely, 100%. So you're, you're, you're talking about 30 years of experience that, that's coming to the public. And then uh, anything else? I've got some courses coming and they can all sign up on my uh, uh, website. And then I'm very active on Instagram. Perfect. Cool. I do tons of free information. 
Yes, I love the 2.0 guide too. It's such a great, like, well-written. If you guys are just curious on to hear more about that, I really enjoyed reading that uh, before we got on. Uh, my second question is, if you had your own billboard and it was a busy billboard in New York City, what would your billboard say and why? Muscle is the organ of longevity. Eat your protein. Oh, last question of the day, Dr. Lyon. Maybe if- a couple swear words at the end. I'm not <laughs> That's okay. Um, Last question here. We're going to assume that uh, COVID and all this stuff ends January 1st of 2021, just for some random reason. So so 2020 was the year of COVID and everything else that happened this year. What is something, Dr. Lyon, that you learned in 2020 that's going to make you a better human being in 2021 if it's all gone? Yeah. Um, Well, this is actually kind of a personal answer. So we're expecting our second baby. Congratulations. Thank you. And, you know, for the moms listening, so I, I got pregnant when our baby was 10 months old. And I think what I really learned is that you have to pace yourself. So patience truly, while not easy, is absolutely essential. So I think that we always want to do a lot right now and get it all done. But the reality is there's a nature that takes place. And whether you got COVID or you know, maybe you struggled with depression during this time or whatever it is, there's that nature component that really puts the brakes on things. And that is okay. Again, this goes actually back to the opening that everything has a season. Yeah, very cool. Dr. Lyon, I really appreciated the time with you today. I learned a lot. I'm going to go get some protein right now. You guys (laughs) listening, make sure to get your protein as well. Any other places that I can direct my listeners to see you? Um, No, really just the YouTube, the Instagram and my website. Perfect. We'll put that in the and show notes. You can reach out to me. So I do, um, we do have a patient application that if people are interested to work with me, they awesome. can. Very cool. Guys, if you enjoyed the show, give us some feedback. We'd love to hear from you. We'll see you next week on another episode of the My Fit Podcast.